That's what we're about to do. Let's go with that expectation to Exodus chapter 20. Our time in the Ten Commandments, of course, will remind us of the importance of God's Word in our worship. You might be a little bit hot on my mic. Is that... Maybe turn me down a little bit. Sorry, Joe. Thank you. A little echoey. Check, check. Good morning. Exodus chapter 20. Do I sound weird still or still a little bit in a, in a bottle? I, I feel it's like... It's not the mic's fault. It's not the mic's <laughs> How about now? Okay. Oh, Ross. <laughs> Go to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 6. It does sound a little bit weird. Should I turn my mic off and turn it back on again? Well, that's better now. Sorry about that. See, that's why we do a sound check before. We did the sound check and it sounded fine. All right. Anyway, what I was saying was, as we come to the Ten Commandments yet again this morning, it's a reminder to us of the importance of God's Word, not only in our worship on Sunday morning, but in our worship throughout the whole of our lives. Because we do delight in the law of his word as that song sings. That's what our, the design of his law is meant to do. We often think of it as something that is to constrict or to um, constrain our joy in some sense. But as you find the character of God written across his word as his faithful love, his steadfast love from generation to generation, um, we should also be motivated to explore that more deeply um, as we come to his word each day. And that in that song, it says, we sang that we delight in the law of his word and we delight in the day that he returns to earth. You know, it's interesting, as important as our physical Bibles are, we're not going to be taking them to heaven. Why? Why would we not need this physical book in the kingdom of God? he'll be there, right? The word who was with God and who is God, the spoken expression of God's character perfectly in Christ, we will see him face to face. It's a great hope. All right, are you in Exodus chapter 20? We'll read verses 4 through 6 and then pray. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 3 says. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, as we come to the end of verse 6 and we consider the love of God for those who keep his commandments, we should, in our inward selves, realize a bit of a cringe moment there that we do not keep your commandments. That as we come to worship on Sunday morning, we recognize that there have been moments far more than we would like to admit throughout this past week where we have even intentionally broken your commandments, gone against your revealed will for our lives. We thank you that as we come to your word, we are coming 
with a fresh expectation to see Christ as the fulfillment of the law, as our perfect righteousness on our behalf. And as we especially look at the second commandment, that we would see Christ as the perfect image of the invisible God revealed to us and revealed to us today by the hearing of your word. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you transform us more into that image that you are working in us from one degree of glory to the next? We praise you, Lord, for your glory, for your majesty, that you are God above all, that you are the one who is seated on your throne, highly exalted, that none can fathom, that we could never imagine or make up something that would rightly describe you, and that when we do, we fall so incredibly short. Help us to see you with the eyes of faith this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I want to remind you as we're looking at these Ten Commandments that we are looking at um, these ten words, which are the law of liberty, This was not a law that was given to sort of constrain and restrict the people of God, but it was actually meant to preserve the salvation that they have experienced because of the exodus from Egypt, their exodus from slavery into freedom. And so this is God's expression to them of his character in order that they might walk in faithful covenant with him. Now, did they do that? Did Israel do that perfectly or even well enough? Do we do it perfectly? Do we even do it well enough? No, of course not. So there's a lot that we need to do to get ourselves into the shoes of an Israelite as we hear this, um, to, in one sense, separate our minds from the fulfillment that we know we have in Christ, like saying, hey, we know Christ has fulfilled the law, and that if I'm in him, everything's good, right? But we should also remember where we were before, because so often we live as though we were where we were before. That makes sense? These ten words are delivered by God to the people of God that they might reflect the character of God. This is his grace given to us. If you remember uh, from Alec Mateer, the Scottish, um, the Irish theologian, rather, he says to us that grace, the grace that saves precedes the law that demands. So he does not demand of us anything that he does not already provide for us. Because he's given us salvation in Christ, we can look at these laws and say, okay, I recognize I have not fulfilled these. I have broken these day by day, gone against God's character. And part of the function here that we need to grab onto is this idea of the freedom that Christ has given us to obey, which sounds very contrary to our very 2021 mindset, doesn't it? Freedom to obey. Freedom doesn't go with obedience in our minds naturally. This is what the Lord is revealing us to his word. Well, our commandment that we're looking at today, the second one, says you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That is the lengthy, the full explanation of the imperative part of law. What are you supposed to be doing or not doing? You remember, again, we talked about last week how a lot of these laws are framed in the negative because they are combating the sinful inclinations of our hearts. Now, again, as we put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite listening to these laws, it might be easy for us to say, okay, now I get what this commandment's really saying. 
because a few chapters later on, they do break this commandment almost right away, don't they? Making a golden calf and saying that it is Yahweh, saying it is the God who saved them out of Egypt. And so it's very easy for us to look at that and say, wow, I guess this law doesn't apply anymore. Why? Because I don't make any idols and say, I mean, do you see anything in here, any depictions of God? Do you? No? Yes? Oh, you do. I I think I know what you're thinking. Yeah, very good. Well, don't spoil that. That's towards the end. But you do see the image of God in here, but you don't see it as an object of worship, right? Well, what about this thing? Is this something of an image of God? I mean, sort of. Sort. It has an association, doesn't it? Yeah. It is basically our. Look, I'm not even like lined up with it. There, now I'm there. Right? <laughs> um, the cross is not an image that is meant to be worshipped, but it is something that is helpful in reminding us of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. That when we look at that cross, we don't just see lowercase t. We're seeing truly where uh, an image of where our Savior brought us back into right relationship with him. But we're not meant to worship the cross, right? Can I, he's not, this is not God. This is, this, is a, this, this is where atonement was made. This is where our salvation was purchased. But it's not meant to be an object of worship. Sometimes it can be, though, right? Sometimes we choose to take things like necklaces and put crosses on them or, or WWJD bracelets or, or some kind of imagery that... Maybe even our hearts were just saying, like, this is here to remind me of this, but sometimes we get a little bit legalistic about those kinds of things and start to make them into more than they should be. Maybe that's not so much your speed. That's probably the most immediate connection. But then there's also this deeper issue of how we perceive God. Because remember, the first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. So last week we said, none before me. And this week we're saying we need to be free from idols. It almost sounds like we're saying the same thing. And if you perceive that, then you're not entirely wrong because in a lot of Christian traditions, these commandments are shoved together into one. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other idols. But what hopefully you'll see today is that this is actually a separate and second command, whereas the first one has to do with who we worship. The second command has to do with how we worship. So who we worship the God, the God alone of the Bible, and then how we worship and how we understand him, how we perceive him and how we depict him in our culture. You know, this is interesting to think again in the Israelite context because they're coming out of what country where they were enslaved? Egypt. And does anybody know how many gods Egypt had at the time? Bunch. Bunch, yeah. Yeah, two, around 2,000 throughout Egyptian history around 2,000 gods. And if you look up any of these gods, you will notice that for the most part, the pictures of them have a human body with some different animal-shaped head. You've seen these before, right? Um, Hawks and uh, jackals and even cats. I mean, again, we were just talking about cats. I mean, they're, oh, aren't they? They have some kind of terrible role in Egyptian pantheon too that has to do with death. So again, why we domesticate them and put them in our houses, I don't know. Wild stuff that we're doing. Anyhow, the gods of Egypt numbered in over 2,000. And and surely, as the first commandment comes to the ears of the Israelites, they're saying, okay, we're we're going from a culture where it was normal to worship 
way too many more gods than you could even name in a sentence. And now we're saying we need to worship one God. But beyond that, this new rule that's being put in here is that we need to be freed from the restriction that comes with that depiction of the God they worship. It doesn't really sound like freedom, though, does it? But again, if this is the law of liberty that we're looking at, then there has to be a freedom that comes from this. So our call from this passage is because we are God's image bearers, we must worship him as heard, though he is not actually seen. We must worship him in spirit and in truth, as we read earlier in John chapter 4. Well, this thing about making an image is really important because, as I asked earlier, do you see a depiction of the image of God in this room? As the room stands, no, there are no depictions of God, but you are sitting next to a person who is made in the image of God. And because we bear his image, it would be wrong for us then to sort of create an image and kind of do the opposite of what God has done because he's made us in his image. We need to be careful not to make him in our image, right? That's, that's part of what's going on at the heart of this commandment. Not to come to worship as though, hey, this is my time where I'm going to invent something about God that fits my perspective of who he is, that fits my preferences, especially, of who he is. And it reminded me of, in middle school, uh, starting cross-country, which was a fun and yet shocking moment in my life. Um, but cross-country practice coming to it, I, I realized that I hadn't brought any uh, shorts and t-shirt to run in, so I went to my first cross-country practice running in jeans. Great idea, right? I mean, I didn't think anything of it. It was my first cross-country practice. I'm like, well, I don't know, what's the difference? Shorts, jeans? I mean, how long are we really running? <laughs> Way longer than you want to run in jeans. It was pretty miserable. <laughs> yeah. Cross-country practice was never about what we felt like doing or, or, or thinking lightly of what was about to be done. Couldn't come to cross-country practice and say, you know what, I'd really like to uh, shoot the basketball around a little bit. Is that, is that a good way to practice? Well, not for, maybe for basketball, but not for cross-country. If you're on the cross-country team, you need to be doing what that team needs to be doing to be preparing for the next race that's coming up. And so with our worship, we need to consider who this God is and how we worship him when we come to worship, not just doing our own thing, not making our God into our own image. If you look at the command, there's verbs in here that we need to make a, a point of. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So you shall not make, you shall not bow down, you shall not serve. In those verbs, he covers the whole, the Lord covers the whole relationship of God and people. We cannot create an image for God for any part of worship, whether it be what we know about him um, or our, so that, that making part, you know, we, we're not going around chiseling out in the rocks or in the wood a picture of God anymore so much. Um, but in our minds, this is what we do. In our minds, we are shaping a God on our own. So when it comes to what we know about God, we need to let the word of God transform us in that regard. Um, we cannot bow down to them. We cannot put our hearts in submission to, to a false idea of who God is. And then lastly, we cannot serve them. We cannot let our actions reflect God wrongly. So there's a lot that he's putting on his people here, isn't there? 
I mean, really, all of what you know, all of what you are, and all of what you do needs to reflect a right view of worship. And we also see in this commandment um, a, a covering of all these things, of all, all parts of nature, right, in verse 4. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And again, if you go back to Genesis 1.26, when God creates man and says, let us create man in our image, he also gives dominion over all those realms of nature that God has created to that man. So it's interesting that he says, don't take those realms and imagine that there's something in them that you can actually derive from and start worshiping. All they do is reflect the creativity of God, but not actually God himself. So again, he said, I made you in my image. Do not make me in your image. That would be to turn everything backwards. Alec Mateer says of this commandment that behind this commandment, so sternly expressed and enforced, lies a theology, a doctrine of God, that he is spiritual and self-revealing. And when we turn to worship him, we must fill our minds and our imaginations with what he has revealed and the word he has spoken. So while this seems so limiting, what he's actually doing is saying, stop limiting yourself to creation or the things you see in creation or the things that you hear from others who are worshiping, even if they say, I'm worshiping the same God. Do not be limited by those kinds of things, but fill your minds and imaginations with what God has revealed to you. The things that we've been singing about this morning uh, help us bolster in that as we're thinking about uh, that song earlier, Behold Our God. I mean, everything in there gave us this heavenly perspective that was far beyond what nature could ever express. And all of this is being delivered to us, not by sight, but by sound. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, as Moses reminds this next generation of the law that was given, he says, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. This is why we as God's people from generation to generation have been people of the word. God has revealed himself to us in Christ as, as a person, but he's not here physically with us anymore, right? He's living in his people through his spirit, but our faith is one that is of faith and not of sight, of hearing God's word and following his voice rather than following something visually. The problem that we run into, as we've mentioned already, is that we give up our freedom and worship when we make God the image bearer of our design rather than the other way around. When we look to the world and we look to the way others who have diverted from and have closed up the Bible and said, hey, there's actually this newer way that we can worship God. There's a different route that we can take. There's, there's something else. There's, there's some things about God that I don't like. And you know, the fact is, is that we can just tear those pages out of our Bibles. This actually creates bondage, though it is done in pursuit of freedom. So our hearts desire to take from what we see in other sources and form God accordingly. You know, he mentions here in this commandment that, that you know, we should not look to nature for these things. We may not be going outside and saying, oh, I want to worship a tree, I want to worship a frog, I want to worship these kind of things. But 
there are things about God that initially perhaps don't settle very well. Maybe something even in this passage that we read later on when he says uh, that he is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Is that anybody's life verse in here? I mean, that would be kind of a strange one, wouldn't it? But it is something that is true of God. Easily something that we would like to take a Sharpie and just kind of black out in our Bibles, perhaps. The purpose of our sinful hearts is to turn God into something that we can actually manipulate. We can actually change and kind of make God into Play-Doh or maybe more like um, Mr. Potato Head, right? To, To take the parts that we don't like and put the parts on that we do. In addition to that, as we as we kind of shape how we perceive God, we also shape how we relate to him on our own by doing that. And so that really the only other way we can relate to God besides grace is by works. And so we say things like, if I do blank, then God has to do blank. Whatever that thing may be. If I am sure to uh, make my kid memorize scripture and make sure he's in Sunday school every week, and make sure that he only does these kinds of things, that God has to make sure that he's saved and stays a Christian for his whole life. If I do everything I can to uh, give money to the church or give money to different organizations, God has to give me even more money so that I can enjoy it for myself. If I take... Uh, every opportunity I have to serve other people, then I know God's going to make my life easy and perfect. You hear the transaction of this is to say that there are things that I can do that will cause God to do other things. And this is exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, they, they come to this point where they say, hey, waiting for Moses to come down with these Ten Commandments, it's taken too long. We're going to do something about it on our own. And so, of course, Aaron says, all right, give me all the gold that you have, and we'll pour it into uh, this this thing here, and we'll make whatever comes out of it. And he he even says it to Moses. It's kind of funny in Exodus 32. He he replies to Moses and says, well, I mean, we took all the gold, and out came this calf as if he had no other part of it. It just happened to be that way. But this was, of course, what God's people had designed and shaped to brought together so that they would have something visually to worship. So their complaints kind of boil down to this. Yahweh's being too slow and we need everything right now. Moses is telling us that Yahweh is immutable, that he doesn't change. We need a God we can shape with our own hands. Moses is telling us that Yahweh is invisible and we can only believe if we can see. We want to see something. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels when he tells uh, so many people who were asking for signs. He says an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This is not what you should be looking for. In an attempt to reflect the image of God as they create this golden calf, they actually deny every bit of revealed truth that they have received thus far. So the rule is laid out clearly, and the rule is so easily broken. Now we come to, in verse 5, we see the reason for this rule is very striking. God says, I am a jealous God. 
It's not a word that we like to describe ourselves as, right? If I just met you and you would say, hey, I work here, I do these kind of things, these are my hobbies, I'm a very jealous person. Um, I also like to eat at Chinese restaurants, and nobody really throws that out there. But God freely throws it out and says, you shall not bow down to or serve these idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember, we're talking in the context of how we worship Yahweh. He's not talking about being jealous of of other of the gods of Egypt or or other religions or things like that. He's saying he is jealous for right worship. Now, is jealousy ever a good thing? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What kind of contexts would you say it is good to be jealous? How about in a marriage? Right? Jealousy in a marriage is a good thing in one sense if we're talking about the exclusivity of a husband and a wife, that no other person should be involved in that relationship. Jealousy is a good thing in that regard. How about in parenting? When you parent your children and you're wanting to raise them up in the truth of who God is and the world is trying to tell them otherwise, it would be a good thing to act on a, in a, in a, with jealous zeal to serve them and to pull them away from error back into the truth. And so this is exactly what God is talking about. Um, Alec Matir says that this jealousy is not so much speaking about an emotion, but of an action. That God is zealous and it cares deeply about right worship. It speaks of his love that drives him to action. So we shouldn't twist this into thinking that God is jealous over how we may or may not fail or do right in our worship on Sunday morning and that, that he's sitting up there going like, oh, I just I wish that they would do better. And it's, it's not the way we think of jealousy exactly. But he shows the expression of it in the second part of verse 5. I'm a jealous God, and so I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You might look at that and think, okay, so this doesn't seem very fair, does it? I mean, does anyone think it's right for a person to be imprisoned for a crime they didn't commit? And of course not. We shouldn't have to pay consequences for things that we haven't done. And at first glance of this to say, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, it almost immediately sounds like we're saying that if my dad did something wrong, I'm also going to get punished for it. And so is my kid and then the kid after that. And then God will be done. But look at the end of verse 5 here. The iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. See, our, our problem with breaking the second commandment comes from a lack of love. And with God, there's no middle area. You can't be neutral towards him. Because this is all framed under the, the law of liberty is framed in the context of salvation. And God's primary message, and really his only true message to the world is Christ. And what he's done on that cross on behalf of all who will believe and become a part of his people. And so truly, when we relate to God in worship, which is what we were created to do, we are created to be in relationship with him through worship, when we turn away from that, we are actually in an expression of hatred towards God and not love. Kind of a hard pill to swallow, but again, it's framed under the context of salvation. 
that Christ has died so that we could be brought back into his family. And to turn away from that is not just a, eh, sorry, I'm looking for something else. No, that's just not really my speed. I'd like to create a better way to worship than to worshiping through Christ. It's a matter of love and a matter of hatred. He is jealous because he's motivated by love for the good of his people. And he will visit iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. So listen to what Kevin DeYoung says in explanation of this. This is basically when it comes to understanding this. It's a warning that you can't say, I'm only doing what my parents taught me. You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or your culture or your personal history. God will punish the next generation if they continue in the sins they learned from the previous generation. He says that's the point of the warning. Generation to generation learns from the previous generation, right? And if one generation hates God and chooses to worship him contrary to the way that is rightly prescribed in his word then that next generation is going to learn that. And unless they unlearn that, if they continue in that... So, so Kevin is, is making a good point here that it's not just this matter of, of passing this on, but there's an active participation in this as well. Again, you see the iniquity of the fathers from the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It, makes us, it should make us concerned about the legacy that we lead as parents, Right? as we raise up our kids, that we should be raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they might follow him rightly. So basically, when we act out the sins we have learned, we bring the same judgment on ourselves. And this is that serious consequence of making a graven image, of misunderstanding who God is. But the second part of this, the the second part of the result shows the glorious nature of God's grace and love in verse 6. Look at it again. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should notice the contrast in here. He says, The iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the third and fourth generation. This isn't meant to be a simple math equation of just saying, okay, once the fourth generation's over, they stop learning, whatever. No, don't think about it in that way, but realize the weightiness of God's character here. What is it that he is more focused on? What is it that he is more intentional about? What is it that he will delight in doing? He's talking about the third and fourth generation of iniquity, but he says, I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations. Basically, innumerable, rather, would be the number of generations that he wants to show steadfast love to for those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, we've already agreed, look, we've, we've broken this commandment. We have made God into something that we don't, that, that he really isn't. We, we've, we've wrongly perceived him in our hearts We've made in our minds an idea of what we want God to be. We've submitted our hearts to that God, and we are acting out every moment, whether we recognize it or not, as worship to a God that doesn't exist, to a false perception, to a false image of who God really is. So I fall into that category of hating God on my own. I fall into the category of deserving the visitation of my iniquity 
that has passed down, the thing that I've learned and that I've freely embraced. I haven't kept his commandments, and on my own, I have not loved him. But Christ comes in, the Savior who frees us to pure worship because he is the perfect image bearer of God. Because he has borne the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of all those who hate him. He's borne that iniquity at the cross. And he has shown his kindness to thousands, to innumerable generations, to all who will believe, all who will see Christ for who he truly is by hearing his word. Christ comes into the world as the perfect word of God. And we should be reminded again, as Alec Matir said, the grace that saves precedes the law that demands. For us, as we come to these Ten Commandments, we come as those redeemed in Christ, we come as those who have seen him, as Colossians 1.15 says, as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The perfect representation because he himself is divine. He himself is God the Son. The perfect image of God. You see him as the voice of God as well. And we know that for us today, the importance of our hearing his word is found in Romans 10.17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. When we consider the jealousy of God in relation to Christ, we're seeing him speaking of the love that drives him to action. And we see the, what, what people have even called reckless in recent worship songs, love of God at the cross. That he would go to such extremes that he might not have to visit your iniquity on, on you yourself, but to put it on Christ at the cross instead. His passion to protect that which he has bought for himself drives him even to the point of sending his own perfect son to the cross for you. I am a jealous God. I will visit this iniquity. I will bring all things to justice. I will make all things right, all wrongs right particularly. But in Christ, he shows us his steadfast love to countless generations. This is what God delights to do. It's his, meaning of, it's his means rather of exalting Christ in his church that we look to him with the eyes of faith. He's a God that we cannot see right now. One day we will see him, right? We delight in his return to earth, but for now we delight in seeing him through the eyes of faith and embracing his steadfast love. This is our only cure for our desire to create idols in our hearts of who God is, to see him clearly as he truly is, the one who bore the iniquity of generations, the fierce wrath of God's jealous rage, so that he would bring us into the overwhelming and greater display of his great love for us. I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible says, and we always quote it together when we read it at night when it comes up. But anytime it talks about God's love, it calls it his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And this is what God has shown us in Christ. From generation to generation, this message is delivered so that we might hear it, believe it, receive it, and walk in it as we go in worship. So as his image bearers, we are now in Christ free to fill up on his revealed truth in order to worship him rightly. This love to thousands is our motivation to leave a legacy through testifying to the world around us. He has love for thousands. So often we would think that I don't want to open my mouth and tell someone about Christ because they're going to reject it. But right here we see 
the problem is, is, is met with an overwhelming abundance of steadfast love that's available to anyone who will receive it. This ought to motivate us to freely testify to his goodness, to freely testify to his love. And his spirit is given to us for this purpose. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 is kind of the go-to sanctification verse, but it fits really perfectly here for us as we end. Paul writes, Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Even in his law, there is freedom. You shall not make a graven image. Don't be bound by idols. Be freed by true and pure worship. Paul continues in verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith day by day, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The thing we should be concerned about when it comes to an image of God is how we are imaging God to the world around us. Because we were made in his image. Because God is restoring that image in us day by day by his spirit. The spirit has freed us to walk freely in the law of liberty, making the character of God visible to those around us. And we're being transformed into that image day by day, bearing witness to who he truly is. Not that somebody can look at me and say, oh wow, that's a perfect representation of who God is. But as I live not under the bondage of sin, but in the freedom of grace in Christ, that's noticeable. That will pour out into the rest of my life as I work, as I go to the grocery store, as I cut my grass, as I do whatever it is that I do in my daily life. So the thing I want you to know as we go is that true freedom in worship is found in the truth of who God is. That God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not in our own contrived means, our own perspective of what we think God ought to be. We ought to be vigilant to compare what we perceive with the truth of his word. We ought to put in that work to say, is there something that God is revealing to me in his word that is contrary to what I day by day accept about him? Most often it comes down to the matter of our sin. That, that sometimes we think too little of sin to the point where we say, hey, it's not a big deal whatsoever and God doesn't even care. We do need to deal with our sin. We're called to walk and bear fruit in keeping with, with repentance, John the Baptist tells us. <clears throat> so we should be vigilant. We should be zealous, just as Jesus is zealous for the house of the Lord, as we read in the Gospel of John. We should also be zealous for the purity of our own worship, not to be stained by sin, because he is worthy of that, knowing that his spirit is the one who reveals it so that we might walk in the freedom of Christ's forgiveness. So this week, I want you to do whatever it takes to live in that freedom by the spirit for pure worship of the one true God. Because nothing else matters more than that. Nothing else matters more than our worship pouring out into all areas of our lives. So I challenge you this week to reread this passage Ask yourself in a moment of meditation, seek the Lord in a moment of prayer, how can you in freedom bear the image of God to the world around you? Could you take five minutes and pray and prepare for a way you could do that this week? Think about the people that you're going to meet. Think about the places you're going to go. And if you think about your week ahead and you think, I don't even know what's going to happen, then just prepare your heart because the Lord... Jesus has clearly said the fields are white for harvest and our prayer should be that he would send workers into the harvest.
Doors are open. Opportunities are there for us to share who Christ is with the world. So let us do so in freedom and confidence in him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, I pray as we close our service that you would cause us to reflect in our minds how we perceive you, how that pours out into our lives, how we bear your image to the world around us, recognizing that that is not a perfect depiction by any stretch of the imagination, of course, knowing that you are transforming us more and more into the image of God. Lord, help us to not put aside the cares of worshiping you, to be zealous to worship you in spirit and in truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.